This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Suki, author of the novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And before we get started on this, which is going to be a very super depressing Sugi episode, I have I have a bit of good news. Your students came up with this episode. Oh, well, okay, that's TBD. true. You're going to love it, though, how depressing it is. But do you know what? This is coming out on May 11th. Do you know what day this is? What day is May 11th? It is my son... Morrison, a.k.a. Moss Terrell's 18th birthday. No. He is all grown up. He has finished all, all but the shouting. High school, he's done a great job. He studied hard. He's going to go to NYU. I'm super proud of him. I just wanted to shout out a happy birthday to my son. Well, happy birthday, Moss. I remember when you were 12 and we started this podcast. Um, I'm... I know. Can you believe that? He was 12 he years was old. He was a little baby. That's insane. Um, oh, my God. Well, we have to have a better world for his generation, I think. Um, and right. and now I am segueing smoothly into this depressing topic that your students came up with. And it's true. I'm totally fascinated by it. Um so like a few months ago, you and I were talking about East Palestine with your students. So for our listeners who might not be familiar with this, uh, this is the incident a few months ago where a train carrying 100,000 gallons of hazardous chemicals derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, and residents of the town had to evacuate, and emergency responders decided to burn the train's chemical cargo intentionally Brilliant to, idea. to avoid the risk of a larger explosion. Yeah, well, okay. Maybe that was, I guess, but there's this problem with burning toxic chemicals like vinyl chloride is that it produces a class of toxins called dioxin. And dioxin is carcinogenic. And now there are major concerns about continued environmental contamination in that area. So had you heard of dioxin before we started working on this episode? Because I felt like I should have, but I definitely had not. I feel like I... (laughs) It was like a, it was like hearing an old song that you hadn't heard for a long time, like by the Cars or something. Like I, you know, like when I was a, when I was young, much younger in 1983, there was this um, Superfund site in Missouri, in Times Beach, Missouri, because in years before that they had been spraying the roads with um, this oil that had dioxin in it, you know, and the whole town, you know, basically had to be abandoned. So I re- I did once we started doing the research for this and reading. And talking to the author that we're going to talk to, remember that. But I had not thought about dioxin in a very long time. Well, holy shit, is what happened in Times Beach, is that what's what's going to happen in East Palestine? What, what kind of 
What does this kind of toxic exposure do to a community in the long term? It is not good. But to get the exact answer, we're going to talk to the writer, Carrie Arsenault, who's got all the information that we need to know. Carrie Arsenault is a literary critic co-director of the Environmental Storytelling Studio at Brown University, contributing editor at Orion Magazine, Democracy Fellow at the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History at Harvard, and author of Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains, which won the Rachel Carson Environment Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists and the Maine Literary Award for Nonfiction, was also a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Leonard Prize for Best First Book in Any Genre. Carrie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me and uh, reaching out. Thanks for being here. Uh, in your book, Milltown, which I really think is an important book, you return to your hometown of Mexico, Maine. And just before we get to talking about the problems there, <laughs> and, and which is the book is about, what was it like growing up there? Um, you know, before you learned about the very complicated relationship that the town had with the local paper mill. You know, I'm, I'm super glad you asked that because I think it's important to know what there is to lose before you read about loss, especially with environmental loss. And um, as such, it was a it was a great place to grow up. I mean, it was like gangs of kids running around playing in people's backyards and swimming in the river and skiing. And we lived outside, basically. Um, our mothers stayed home until at least the 80s. Our fathers went to work and everything was pretty stable. It was great. I had a great childhood. So... Uh, you moved away, you came back, and a character in the book, um, a person in the book whose conversations with you kind of helped to bring you home is is a woman named Terry Martin. And she was married to um, a man named Edward Martin, whose nickname was Doc. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about um, how your conversations with Terry kind of brought you back to Mexico and how you learned from them about the pollution that led to the town of Mexico earning the nickname Cancer Valley. I think, I actually think Doc Martin came up with that nickname and then it got repeated in uh, a Boston news uh, program. But um, the nickname, we joked about it all the time growing up. So even though I had this great childhood, we'd be like, oh, we live in Cancer Valley. And um, when I started to do genealogy research in the beginning of working on this book, I went to Terry because she and her husband were, Lead, led the Acadian Society, which is what my ancestry is from. So I went to her and then she's like, you can't write about your family without writing about disease. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and um, she she put it this way, basically, she's like, your, your family history is tied directly to the environmental history of the United States. And here's why, you know, they, she and she was a nurse too. And she and Doc Martin had seen all these cancers, uh, the, the diagnosis of cancers in our town, uh, increasing over the years and all kinds of strange cancers too. And um, Doc Martin started to try to get people to care, leaders, the mill, the main DEP, that's the Department of Environmental Protection, the EPA, tried to warn people. Um, but basically he was silenced in, in a few ways that I talk about in the book. And then Harry took up the cause later, uh, starting a bucket brigade of literally trying to catch air and sending it off to labs, which I think is the most futile exercise I've ever heard. But, um, and then, and then she did a door to door survey, a house study, she called it, she went door to door, knocked on people's door in the neighborhood doors in the neighborhood where my grandparents lived and found stunning, um, you know, unofficial 
cancer results from those house studies. Anyway, that's kind of where we started. I thought those scenes were, those were really are heartbreaking because you feel, you have the sense yeah. of like how little chance she has of getting this to anyone to pay attention to or the lack of resources. There's not, she just, she just doesn't have any scientific, you know, apparatus to sort of do what she's trying to do. She's just hand making these studies. Yeah, I mean, that that's part of the futility. That's why I say like catching air just seems like it's like a metaphor for this whole book. And it's like both in her trying to get something done and in me trying to find information. It was like trying to capture air in a bucket. When I look at these news stories about the people living in East Palestine, who we talked about at the top of the show, and they're talking about like, well, so-and-so felt sick and this is happening. And like, I feel like they're almost doing the exact, they're going through the exact same process of like feeling something's wrong, not having the tools to check on it, not trusting the government to check on it for them. I wonder if you felt similarities there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. When the danger of dioxin, which is the thing that was released in, in burning vinyl chloride um, in, in Palestine, and the thing that's released when you, um, it's a byproduct really, that's uh, it's created when you bleach white paper, which is the, the same thing, what happens in my town. So dioxin, we're talking about dioxin. So there's a lot of um, problems with it health-wise, but the sociological and the mental problems are something that people are not talking enough about. Like when people in communities like mine or Palestine are told by leaders or companies or lawyers that, you know, they're told misleading information like local cancers are within a normal range. Um, they aren't. Uh, risks can be controlled. They can't. That industry or government is not to blame, and they usually are. And people can develop PTSD, actually, or non-empirical belief systems because the bodily facts that they develop don't add up. The, the bodily facts they experience don't add up to what they're told. So I, I'm glad you pointed that out because it's, it's a constant problem in any of these kind of environmental disasters it's the same old story you know it's fascinating because i mean it's really like the gaslighting of an entire town and the they have to insist on telling their story repeatedly i was reading that cdc investigators who were at the site seven of them got sick um it just seems like yeah the story that the epa tells about itself um as not responsible you know, we didn't know that the chemicals were going to be burned. We No one checked with us. You know, this, this, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is the same story and over and over. A toxic event happens, the media rushes to it in a flurry, activists get involved, the government acts concerned and nothing ever really happens. That's the story, right? And then we forget about it in the media. Um, you know, it's not on the front page. So there's other new things and spectacles happening. But um, I don't know, it's, Blaming the EPA or blaming anybody. I, I've been thinking about this idea of blame. You know, we all want to hold somebody accountable or responsible, but I'm not sure that's the solution either. I'm not even sure the EPA is to blame. I mean, who is to blame? It, I, I think it goes down to, you know, maybe crafting regulations that, that keep our country safer, that keep communities safer, that keep all of us safer, you know, from toxic chemicals. Like in Europe, they, they, the, most of their chemicals that are created, they, they have this thing called a precautionary principle that these companies have to prove the chemicals are safe. In the US, the burden is put on us, like citizens. We have to prove they're dangerous. It's like, it's a little whack-a-mole system we have going on. I mean, we're, 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit more about regulation. Regulation is like, I mean, we have a, a party that is explicitly against all kinds of regulation. And there's a long mantra in America that regulation is bad. And and I teach many, many essays about how regulation is is what's good. And when regulation goes away, you have terrible like, disasters. But anyway, but the one thing, the other reason we brought you here is to talk a little bit about the history of dioxin. Because you write not just about what happened in your town, but like how off frequently this has happened. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the history of dioxin poisonings in America um, and what makes dioxin so dangerous. Yeah, let me quickly start. I'll, I'll try to explain why dioxin is so dangerous. It's, it's the and by the way, term. I'm sorry, I should have said this yeah. at first, is that the concern <laughs> is that in East Palestine, there is dioxin, that the, the, the combination of the chemicals, the burning has yeah. released dioxin, and that is, that is why we're focusing on that chemical. Yeah, no, um, it's a generic term for a group of about 75 related chemical compounds and they're produced unintentionally. So they're always a byproduct of something. They're never a thing that's produced to do something like a pesticide, right? Um, like like the processing of bleaching paper with chlorine, like I mentioned, and um, dioxins uh, also were uh, part of what was used in Agent Orange to defoliate the jungle in Vietnam. And that was in what, you know, um, then there was, that was, 1961 to 71-ish, they were using that. So for 10 years, just spraying dioxin on the jungle. Um, Love Canal, uh, 1978. Then there was Times Beach, Missouri, which was 1972 maybe, but that lasted for about four years. They were spraying the roads with this, um, to keep the dust down. It was mixed with um, um, dioxin and waste oil. And, and anyway, they just sprayed it. That town I think is not livable anymore. Um, those are the, and what's interesting is those are like, when I'm saying these are spectacle events, like these are the ones that people get involved in and report on, but there's like tons of other things like places in my hometown that are a lot more unspecial and unspectacled, not newsworthy that nobody's reporting on. I mean, even, even in Maine right now, there's a big class action suit about um, paper mills had been and waste facility plants have been spreading sludge over farms across Maine, right? And that that they contain PFAS, but what they're not talking about is those, that sludge also contains dioxin. So there's like a slow-moving horror film about like the farms in Maine. They also spread them on baseball fields. So so there's these kind of big events, but there's also a lot of slow-moving, slow events that aren't getting reported on. I want to just go back for a second to I was going through this list of this. You have a couple of um, kind of uh, like moments where you outline this chronology in your book and. You mentioned Times Beach, Missouri, and I kind of glommed onto that because Whitney is in Missouri. And then you also mentioned Seveso, Seveso, Italy, and I'm currently at a residency in Italy. And I was kind of like, oh my God. And, and in Times Beach, one of the interesting things was I was trying to like understand how this worked. And Times Beach was abandoned in 1983, but the motor oil thing was going on in 72 to 76, which means that people were living in that town with the dioxin, like under, like, and it, and it became uninhabitable like seven years later. And so like this long stretch of time happens where 
people are living in this place that's not safe at all. And it takes them that long to like do anything. Do something. (laughs) Yeah, they knew. I mean, they knew it was unsafe by then. I mean, they used it to defoliate jungles. They knew it could cause harm, you know, right. to living things. So, I mean, um, that's what's right. happening in East Palestine right now, aren't they? Isn't, I mean, these people are saying, like, should we be here? And the government is saying, like, oh, you're fine. And they're like, we don't know, you know? And I just feel like it's so terrifying to watch that happen. Yeah, I, I, I mean, again, it goes back to the, you know, this... It goes, I think these kind of incidences honestly can create a lot of our political divide. And I don't mean to get into politics. I'm not a politician. I'm not a dioxin expert or whatever. But, but when people living in these rural towns are affected by these environmental disasters, right? And like I said, then they feel like they're being lied to by their government. Therefore, they don't trust government. So therefore, they don't want the regulations, Whitney, like you were saying. People don't mm-hmm. want regulations because they don't trust the government. And therefore, we end up in this like, crazy like circle of like nobody's getting help you know does that make sense that makes complete sense and I mean so in your book you write um really powerfully about government and industry collaborating to suppress information about the harmfulness of dioxin I wonder if you could read a passage from your book about that as as we're having this conversation I'd love for our listeners to to get that um passage from your book Okay, Um, although I had skimmed the EPA's draft assessment on dioxin years ago, trying to sum it up was like trying to sum up the Bible and trying to understand it was like trying to understand God there, him or herself. It's hard to compute. I searched through the notes on my computer to see what I wrote about that report. And I find an email exchange with Stephen Lester, the science director at the Center for Health, Environment and Justice, an organization led by Lois Gibbs, an activist who brought public attention to the Love Canal crisis. I'd written to Stephen in 2017, asking if he could school me on the EPA's dioxin assessments, which was his area of expertise. He said to call, however, I dropped the ball. I email again, Stephen again today, I think this was 2019, a couple years later, to see if he can clarify a few things, like why nobody's talking about dioxin when it seems a critical health issue, at least to me. He said there were two studies the EPA released on dioxin. One was the cancer risk assessment released in draft in 2003, and the other was the non-cancer risk assessment released in final form in 2012. I hadn't understood the difference until now. This was a change in the agency's strategy, Stephen said, to exclude the cancer risks from the final EPA dioxin study. That 2012 report only discussed non-cancer risks such as reproductive and immune problems associated with dioxin exposure, the 2003 draft determined that dioxin was carcinogenic and that the cancer risk was very high. Exposure to any amount of dioxin increased the risks of getting cancer. At the time of the 2012 report, the agency told us and the public in general that it was continuing to work on the cancer risk portion of the assessment and they were not done, Stephen writes. But since that time, I've been told repeatedly by staff at EPA that the cancer risk portion is on the shelf with no plans by the agency to go back to it. Why, I ask innocently enough, why won't the EPA go back to finish the job and publish that report? Quote, when the EPA ran the dioxin risk numbers for cancer, those numbers came out so high, it would have a significant ramifications, a debilitating economic impact for the entire US economy. What, I hear myself. Asking him, not quite registering what he's saying. Put it this way, if the EPA used cancer risk 
rate data to determine how much dioxin would be allowed in food, you wouldn't be able to even buy a McDonald's hamburger. McDonald's specifically, I ask? No, he says, that the threshold for dioxin is so low based on the 2003 cancer risk assessment that almost all meat, fish, and animal byproducts like butter and milk would have dioxin levels that exceed government standards for how much a person, for how much would be allowed in food. Even one simple hamburger could do a person harm. McDonald's is just a handy reference. He reiterates that the EPA doesn't currently, currently list dioxin as a carcinogen. Will the EPA ever publish this data, I asked? Will they ever make these claims? What they did was brilliant, he says. They published the study on non-cancer risk, then walked away. Dioxin is no longer a problem in the public eye because the EPA stopped thinking about it and stopped analyzing it. So everyone thinks the study is done, I say. It seems that way. No one worries about dioxin anymore. That is not good. <laughs> completely alarming. So like the food I'm eating is like, it has dioxin in it all the time, basically. Yeah, as does your body. I mean, all of us do. We all have it in us to a point where this is what I've been told. Again, I'm not an expert, but um, we have enough in us to be almost carcinogenic, all of us, because it bioaccumulates, it doesn't go away. And it, and it also um, is persistent. It's a persistent organic pollutant. So it stays in our bloodstream. It's got an extremely long half-life. And by the time we get rid of that portion that we ingested, we're getting more. So it's constantly, it's like a, a river of dioxin going into our body. So like people, Sorry. I read about the people having plastic in their bodies, right? And I'm like, okay, I can deal with the plastic. But now this, I don't <laughs> feel good about I love I'm not okay. Feel, feel about plastic. Well, it's interesting. Um, just recently, I want to follow up that with a quick little note that I, I worked with this high school in Booth Bay, Maine, and they read this book and they were all kids were like horrified by the, the same as you. And they were like, what can we do? What can we do? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not an activist. I was like, just write to your governor or write to whoever. So they write and, and their letter gets sent to defend our health. It's this organization. Their tagline is Solutions for a toxic-free tomorrow. Do you want to know what she said? Here's what she said. I wrote it down because I want I want people to know. Her name is hmm, Sarah Woodbury. She said, um, I talked to my boss, um, blah, blah, blah. He said that the issue of dioxin isn't really actionable now. There was a big nationwide fight back in the day that led to the action, led to action both in Maine and at the federal level. Those fights got rid of about 95% of the dioxin. What is left isn't of much consequence, so there isn't much to do. I hope that helps. So even no, person, that does not help. I don't. <laughs> that sounds like a person, load of shit. It's a load of, I mean, solutions for a toxic free tomorrow. You're like, here's the thing: even if 95, 99% of the dioxin was gone, there's the one percent is. It's one. Of, it's probably you know it's been considered the most toxic, man, human made. Uh, chemical that there is. So, and, it, and it's very harmful in very, very, very undetectable amounts. So, um, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> so, I don't eat as much meat as I used to. <laughs> oh my God. Um, or cheese. Yeah. So, I mean, this cheese? Well, it's, it's, it, 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 bio, God damn it. Oh, it bioaccumulates in the fat of living things. So, meat but also the byproducts of like if cows so look at it this way if a, if a cow ingests it and 
makes butter, uh, you know, out of the cow's milk. So it's like two degrees away from the cow. It's actually, it can become stronger. That's what I mean when I say bioaccumulate. So like if my mother had it in her, because she was directly in, you know, ingested, I'm just saying, you know, for exaggerated effect, she ingested it. And then she breastfed me and I breastfed my baby. The person most affected would be my baby would have more I think that babies now breastfeeding I think there's like it's 77 times the amount yeah here it is at the top of the food chain is human babies whose breastfeeding mothers can expose nursing infants to dioxin levels 77 times higher than the EPA recommends the rest of this episode is just going to be me screaming. Just, <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just, just put on the white noise sound and the, oh the, the video shut down. I mean, white Holy noise. Let's talk about shit. that. <laughs> Let's talk about white noise by John DeLillo. It's a toxic airborne event. I mean, come on. It couldn't be a better segue. <laughs> That's true. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. But, um, no, I mean, people were people were talking about this, right? Like some of these people were extras in White Noise, weren't they? Like right before this happened. Is that true? I think in East Palestine. I mean, I'm not surprised. The weird wor- the world works in very strange ways. I mean, dioxin, you know, that's just one small baby statistic. And, you know, dioxin, it's, you know, it's been found in products like tampons, diapers, coffee filters, tissues, lobsters, baby food, fertilizer, fuel. It's a byproduct to every book, magazine, document we read, except for my book, because I used chlorine-free paper in my book. Um, um, and every piece of paper my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather ever made. So, um, you know, look around the room you're sitting in, everybody listening, or all those books behind all of us. <laughs> There's only one other book I know that was published on chlorine-free paper and it's called Pandora's Poison and it's about chlorine and organochlorines. He was smart enough like after researching for whatever how many years he published his book on that paper. Okay we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So we spent um, some time on the EPA site devoted to the East Palestine derailment. Um, And there's like a really complicated structure here because, as I understand it, the EPA ordered Norfolk's uh, Southern to clean up the site. um, And they're doing soil samples and air quality samples. But there's like a little bit like who is doing those soil samples and air quality samples like who is doing the testing? What are their thresholds? And But even so, this seems different, very different from the scene you describe in your book where mill employees, like often on their deathbeds after contracting cancer, admit to disposing of mill waste in unsafe ways or allowing untreated river water to, say, enter the town's drinking water in the direction of other mill employees. Nobody seems to be watching them. And and the EPA has been criticized and, and other actors in this whole situation, as you rightly point out, have been criticized for the response in East Palestine, but is the EPA's response here better or is all of this data collection kind of still a cover-up? I mean, data collection, I don't know. The data is just data, it's data. Data never changes anyone's minds as far as I'm concerned. Um, that's that's a whole other story. But, you know, I, I don't know who's doing the data collection there and I, I should 
look that up a little more. But many studies, as you may know, are done by the companies themselves. Like the TRI database, it's called the Toxic Release Inventory. It's like a federally uh, program where companies have to record what kind of toxics they're spewing into the air. Um, but the companies do it themselves and it's not monitored. So like right. they can put, put whatever they want on there. Um, you know, and um, there was an article published today in the New York Times by Eric Lipton, I think. Um, and he said, an analysis prepared by the advocacy group Earth Justice based on federal records shows that more than 1 million pounds of so-called high priority chemicals, including carcinogens, butadine and formaldehyde have been released over the past decade in the Deer Park neighborhood. Now he's talking about Houston, but Houston and Palestine are actually connected. I don't know if you know that, but the um, Rebecca Altman has an incredible uh, article called On Vinyl about this. It's just published online in Ryan Magazine that, that connects those two places. But it was interesting because uh, one million pounds, and we're talking about data, right? And I thought, huh, in my town, this is over 10 years, one million pounds of, it sounds terrible, right? In my town, in 2018, 2,421,017 pounds of toxic were released, those are the ones that were reported into my town in one year. So like, I don't know, what what is this data doing? Does, does, is anybody changing their mind about it? It sounds horrible, we all gasp, and then everybody moves on because we're not dealing with people, we're dealing with data. They wanna get the data down, they wanna track the data. What about the people? Like, why, why aren't they doing something there? Why don't they just stop? <laughs> when you say a million pounds, you mean into the air? Or in some yeah, other way. I, I think he says more than a million pounds were released over the past de decade. So that could mean air, soil, groundwater, whatever. Okay. Probably a combination of all those three. Yeah. Uh, there was a quote in that uh, same article, which I read this morning as well, thinking that it was good timing for our discussion, uh, that uh, a person from that Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services calls these neighborhoods, like your town, sacrifice zones. I think seems like an apt term, like basically, okay, yes, we know that people are being poisoned there, but we have to do this industrial work. And so they're going to die. Yeah, that's basically it. And it happens all over the world. And it, it happens even more egregiously in countries not our own, if you can imagine, right? People that have a lot less regulations than the EPA does. So um, it's, it's frightening. And, and we're talking about one chemical right now, mainly dioxin, you know, we're not talking about what the, the, the sort of few of chemicals can do to people or communities like benzene, butadine, mercury, <clears throat> these, all these things that are involved with a lot of these chemical processes. Um, you know, scientists only study one at a time. They don't study what everything does to us. That's why we're like up the year <laughs> with stuff. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, it's like, I'm like, I could ask you another question. I could just sit here stunned. Um, and yet it's also right. Like you're right. It's, these are all, these are specifics for things that in a broad sense, I, I know. Right. And so early in your book, Doc Martin, who we talked about earlier, receives a report showing that the area is having this, this unusual increase in cancer rates and the board at the Rumsford hospital near your hometown ignores it. And, you know, you're talking about there's no economic in incentive in these cases now, right? The sacrifice zones. And, you know, back then, there's no economic incentive to regulate the mill. The town needs the money and the jobs. And these tra train derailments seem in so many ways like 
the same thing. The railroads know that there are things they could do to prevent the derailments. They could install better brakes. They could have more thorough inspections. And railroad unions have even called for some of these things, have been calling for those things for years. But if the fixes are expensive and the government doesn't require them, then the railroads don't take action. So back to the deregulation thing. Then I was also just reading about the fact that more and more of these chemicals for the manufacture of plastic are being transported across the U.S., because oil companies are sort of trying to shift to the manufacture of plastic because they're worried about decreasing reliance on fossil fuels. So can you talk a little bit more about to what extent these are stories, these environmental stories are stories about government regulation or the lack of it? Like, is that, is that the whole, is that the problem? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, no economic incentive. In fact, there was one headline when I was researching my book, they were like, you know, mill, you know, mill pollution load increases, senators or Congress people or whatever are not worried. Like it was a thing because they're, they're wanna, they want they want to promote manufacturing. And if you look at that newspaper article today, he's got Biden's sort of policy, environmental policy on there. And one of the things was like, increase manufacturing, local manufacturing. And I thought, that's an environmental policy. It seems like an anti-environmental policy until you put better um, restrictions on such companies. Like for instance, with my paper, this is, this is a perfect example going back to what you said. My, my book, I use this non-chlorinated paper and we had to get it in Canada because my publisher looked and looked and looked and couldn't find any. So I asked Mills, why don't you produce this paper? He said, because nobody demands it. So this is part of us too. We need to make better demands upon our legislatures, upon these companies, make the demands. Because if, if we demanded this kind of paper, they would make it. But otherwise, they're not just going to stop and quit because these people have lives to also live. Like we're all making compromises here and there. That's why I, I think blaming one or the other person or company or organization is not useful. We all have to like think about this together. and like, how we can stop this madness. <laughs> I mean, that's where I get... I feel uneasy because I, when I look at the EPA site for East Palestine, I think nowhere in here is it saying if what they're doing is working. It's a lot of busy. <laughs> I, got, I feel very gaslit. On the other hand, I don't want there to not be an EPA, which some people, which the Republicans would prefer to just get rid of it. And there was a Supreme Court case where they were at least considering like sort of removing the EPA's ability to to regulate things, right? And and so I, I, I want to be able to be critical of it without having people say that the criticism means it should disappear because that would be worse. I mean, here's what they should do is they should pump a lot more money into it. It's understaffed. It's under, it, you know, it's underfunded. And so like, instead of Biden going to visit, you know, Palestine, which is just an optic really, right? Take all right. that money you're going to spend on secret service and your private plane and all this other crap. And like, give it to the EPA to do actual studies or to hire people or to give them, you know, whatever, like pump money into the EPA so they can do their job. Right now, they, they can't monitor stuff because they don't have the people to do it. Um, th that's really what it boils down to. They, and they've been, and the EPA has had a lot of their power taken away by states too. And that's because of regulation, not because of Congress, you know, there's a lot of stuff that states can regulate and that all goes to politics you know? Yeah. I was reading about um, like the layers, the layers of response here and the sort of responsibility football going on, right? That um, 
that there's all this deference to the states, but actually, like, does the Ohio EPA have that much expertise? And then if you read the documents that are on the EPA website where it's sort of like, oh, the EPA has taken control of the cleanup. It's like, no, they issued an order. They issued an order and then they said, if you don't do it the way that we want you to, we'll we'll charge you three times the price. And so this sounds very draconian, but if you actually, like if you read a newspaper article about this situation, many of which are written really well and present the situation, it seems to me fairly clearly. And then you look at the EPA site, the EPA site is like, obfuscation.gov it is, <laughs> it is. <laughs> i it's think part totally of it is on, yeah it's totally fucked and i you know i spend a lot of time in the epa's website it's perennially infuriating like i can't find anything that i want to find and um but again i think it's it's lack of funding like the people that work there my husband's a bureaucrat he worked in the u.s coast guard for decades and he still works for the coast guard and a lot of these people are at, they're not there to do bad things. They want to do good things. I've met a lot of them, but like if you're sort of handcuffed by, by, by time, money and desire of our government, what, what can you do? You can only just kind of grab the, you know, what's that term? Just grab the low hanging fruit. Low hanging fruit. I was like, apple, what am I talking about? Low hanging <laughs> fruit. <laughs> that has dioxin in it. Um, <laughs> Gary, thank you so much for joining us. And we encourage our readers to go pick up Milltown Reckoning with What Remains, which is out now. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry for being such a negative Nelly. <laughs> no, I think this is important stuff. And we really appreciate your taking the time to join us. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>